Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of a ridiculously noisy and busy news cycle, really ugly stuff out there right now. Get to the information we need so we can better discern the times we live in. Um, part of having a platform such as we have with Herd Tell or my writing or whatever, I always try to uh, make sure we bring up not just information, but also people that are worth listening to. Part of having a platform is to have some responsibility. I've kind of struggled with what to say and what to think about publicly uh, the events in Israel with the brutal terrorist attack that Hamas put on the Israeli people. Israel is now responding. Um, we have the Palestinians in Gaza that are caught in the middle. We have the Hamas up at the ups in Qatar getting richer and richer while more people die. It's ugly. Um, I've had so many messages over the last few days, people talking to him both online and in real life, uh, private messages, just, you know, I can't believe what some people are telling me about themselves by the way they're acting on social media over this event. Part of having a platform is knowing when you should probably just give your platform to somebody else to speak and shut up and let them speak instead. Um, our friend Avi Wolf, who of course is Israeli, lives in Israel, him and his wife, he's okay. Um, been in communication with him. Uh, I didn't want to overburden him. We'll try to have him on the show when we can. This just ain't the appropriate time with everything going on. Uh, he finally wrote something publicly. He's been on this program before. He's been a writer. Uh, whatever you think of him personally, I want you to listen to the words that he writes here. He wrote in JFeed this piece. Um, it's dated Wednesday as we record this, but I just want you to listen to what Avi says. Not me. This is Avi Wolf writing. I'm going to read it verbatim. We will link to the piece in JFeed. Please read the whole thing for yourself. But I'm going to read the whole piece and just give Avi this platform through me for the next few minutes. So Avi Wolf writing from Israel. I still remember it like it was yesterday, even though it was almost two decades ago. A journalist came to our university to discuss the challenges of reporting on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. After talking about the ins and the outs, he blurted out and said, it's David against Goliath. This was a trump card for him and presumably many others. Hamas's intentions didn't matter. Their rhetoric didn't matter. Even the horrific nature of their actions at this time, quote, only suicide bombings, individual shootings and rocket fire on civilians didn't matter. Hamas is weak and Israel strong, and that's the end of the moral discussion. Again, I'm reading Avi Wolf's piece in JFeed here. Hamas leaders themselves played on those sentiments, claiming that the reason they targeted civilians was because they lack F-15s like Israel does. Their weakness, so goes the argument, Forced, forced is in quotes, them to act against and outright ignore modern rules about modern warfare. 
Presumably, once Hamas was strong and resilient and confident enough, it would join the ranks of the relatively civilized nations. And while not acting perfectly in war, and no country does, they would no longer feel forced to do things most people think barbaric and abhorrent. That claim was completely destroyed last Saturday. By all accounts and reports on all sides, the Hamas force that raided and invaded Israel was a serious one. It was not a ragtag group of desperate, crazed, quote, open-air prisoners or amateurs with no choice but to hit a soft target. This was a disciplined army with weapons and trainings and tactics to match. They knew how to deploy effectively, set ambushes, fight enemy fire with fire, everything, in short, that a civilized army does. Except that far from behaving like a newly inducted and respectable member of the international world, the Hamas force behaved even worse than it did when it was but a weak organization blowing up buses. All that discipline, training, and skill was laser-focused on committing crimes of such cruelty and barbarity it was reminiscent of the kind of horrific human behavior which international treaty after international treaty was supposed to stamp out. This was not an act of desperation. This was a conscious, deliberate choice. Again, I'm reading from Avi Wolf's piece. It turns out, contrary to the journalists who spoke at my university, that intentions do matter, as does rhetoric and ideology. It turns out that weak people are not necessarily good just because they're weak. They may indeed be evil themselves, and when they become strong, they simply become better at being evil. The fact that they claim to speak for the possible legitimate grievances did not say much about the moral status either. History, after all, is filled with horrifically evil moments that appear powerless at first from which champion popular grievances, the Nazis attacking the Versailles Treaty, the Bolsheviks attacking Tsarist oppression, only to show that once in power, they were mere tools to further a moral vision that makes their enemies' claimed misdeeds, real or alleged, seem minor in comparison. The same is true in reverse. Israel has a military more powerful side in this fight since Egypt and Jordan took their armies out of the conflict, even if Israel had often been at a serious disadvantage in other spheres, such as foreign affairs. It has maintained this power for years. Despite this, Israel has never conducted or even contemplated doing anything within the same universe Hamas did with a fraction of the IDF's conventional power. Turns out that being moral is simply a function of being moral, and the presence or absence of strength or weakness says little about whether you will be so. So some people might still cling to the belief that the weak are always the right and the strong are always the wrong. I think anyone who ponders the past week's events will see nowhere near that simple. That's our friend Avi Wolf. He's been on this program. I do pray he's safe and will be on this program again soon, writing in JFeed, putting some perspective on the events, saying things that he needed to say as somebody that's there. And I hope you'll hear them. And I'm happy to give him the voice until we get him here in person. More Hertel right after this. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. 
okay, we keep hitting on this topic, not because we want to talk about it, but because we have to talk about it, because people keep doing it. It drives me nuts. We're going to talk some more civil asset forfeiture. New face to the program. Happy to have her. Sarah Anderson. She's out at the R Street Institute. She handles the assistant director job. Criminal justice and civil liberties. That sounds important, as it is. Another one of our great Young Voices contributors. Sarah, how are you? Thank you so much for your time. I'm great, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I want to cut through this because um, one of my principles when I do media and analysis is follow the money very rarely lets me down. Right. We just don't talk about it in this respect, but we have to. What we have with the criminal justice system and law enforcement, and it varies by level, whether it's local, municipality, state, federal, whatever. Law enforcement's really big business in America. Billions of dollars of business. We don't think of it as a business, but if you're going to talk about things like civil asset forfeiture, civil rights, criminal justice, social justice reform, all those things orbit around the money part of the criminal justice system, but we don't quite land on the planet of the money problem. Shouldn't we kind of start there before we start working our way back out? Because that changes how everybody views it. Now it's not just good good guys, bad guys, cops, robbers, et cetera. Now you got a money component to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially with policing in the past couple of years, there have been many, many debates about the funding of police, how police funding is structured um, and where they're getting their money from. And certainly, of course, as uh, proponents of the rule of law, we believe that fol- police need to be fully funded to protect the communities and protect and serve like they're tasked to do. Uh, but as my article talks about, it can't be at the expense of American civil rights. Now, the article is in the Hill. We're going to link to the entire piece. Make sure you read it. It's also got a couple of links in there you want to read about, especially this Wayne County case we're going to talk about in just a second. When you and your co-writer approached this piece, though, I like how you handled it because you did two things at one time. And I, I'm a writer, so I geek out on writing formats a little bit. You, you did two pongs at once. You took a local example of this, but then you also brought that big number. I think you got to do both of those, because if you just start talking numbers, you know, billions of dollars, if I said our eyes kind of glaze over reading stats on news stories now. Right. We don't comprehend them. It doesn't hit. I think you put both of those together to really get the human part of the story. And that's what you tried to do here. Yeah. I mean, I think when we have a government that is tens of trillions of dollars in debt, you're exactly right that the numbers don't always uh, tell the whole story. And it's really more about the personal examples. So this the case that I started off the piece with um, out of the Sixth Circuit, Sixth Circuit Court um, up in Michigan um, talks about a woman named Stephanie Wilson who had her car seized by no wrongdoing of her own. Um, and their civil asset forfeiture case um, was brought to the court by the Institute for Justice. Um, and fortunately, they did find that their civil asset forfeiture program in Wayne County, Michigan, does violate the due process clause um, in the Constitution, which ensures that people have a right to a speedy and fair trial um, and that they're not having their assets seized inappropriately. Um, what happened in this case um, and what happened in Michigan specifically is a good example of the loopholes that need to be closed in laws around civil asset forfeiture, because Michigan actually is a state that does have a pretty high evidentiary standard for seizing property. Um, however, where they fail in their program is not offering a speedy enough trial um, that left her without her belongings and with no effective way to challenge it, um, which is a violation in itself, regardless of the standard that the government is held to. Yeah. And Sarah Anderson joins. Here's where this gets sticky to me, because, again, media observer watching this, this is one of those things where we look at the exceptions more than the norms. And then we try to make the rules for the exceptions. And then the norms end up getting really skewed and screwed up because 
people understand the concept here. Okay, drug dealers bringing cocaine into the country on a plane. We seize the plane. We seize the dope. And then you stop that from, okay, everybody understands that. Everybody understands, okay, that's got a good legal strategy. It's got a good mm-hmm. crime strategy. We get that one. The problem is that's the exception. That's not happening right. all that often. But all these normal people who have not been found guilty, some of them haven't even been charged. We now have these cases where people are getting civil asset forfeiture and then they wind up not even getting charged and having to try to get exactly. their stuff back. That's the norm. It's moving right. the standards because of those exceptions and what the ideal is. And normal people are getting really hurt and they don't have grievance because now they're stuck in a system that they shouldn't have got put in in the first place. That's a big problem. Exactly. I mean, everyone knows from the time you're a little kid when you're growing up, you know that one of the beauties of our country is that we do have a justice system where you are innocent until proven guilty. With civil asset forfeiture, that's completely turned on its head. Um, Again, in the instance of Stephanie Wilson, she was in an area um, where the law enforcement had decided they thought there was either prostitution or drug activity occurring. Um, she was going to pick up the father of her son to go presumably spend time with their son. Um, And while her car was still running, the law enforcement officers came up. They suspected him to be a petty drug offender. Um, They didn't suspect her of any wrongdoing. She's a nursing student in the area. Um, And they searched her car and they found no drugs. They found no weapons um, and they found no cash, but they still seized her car. So just like you're saying, of course, people can understand where this is a great tool for law enforcement that they likely need to have in many instances to ensure that they can stop crime when they have a strong, strong belief that there's something really bad occurring right there with that property and that person involved. But again, that is the exception, not the norm. Um, And fortunately, this fall, the Supreme Court um, has granted to hear a case called Coley versus the Attorney General of Alabama, um, which covers two cases very similar to Miss Wilson's case in Michigan, um, where two individuals had their um, cars seized and were unable to get them back. They actually combined these two cases into one to hear it in October. So we'll be looking for the results of that to understand how we can better reform this law in our country. Yeah, Sarah Anderson joining us. Here's the thing. You can't get states to agree on anything. You mentioned it in your piece, not just legally, politically Mm -hmm. and culturally. 37 states in the last 10 years have made some kind of a reform. 37. That's a massive number. Four states, Maine, Nebraska, North Carolina, New Mexico have abolished it. Maine, Nebraska, North Carolina and New Mexico (laughs) are very, very different states. Culturally, politically, those are four very different states. They all came to the same conclusion. I take that as a totality. I find those stats very, very telling, especially nationwide. You can't get more different than Maine and New Mexico. That's coast to coast (laughs) for all practical purposes. And they're abolishing these things. North Carolina is a growing dynamic state. Nebraska, that's heartland to the core. What does that tell you when you see 37 states doing this and trying to reform it? That means a widespread problem to me. That means a lot of people of diverse interests and political opinions have come to the same conclusion. What did you draw from that? Yeah, something that I want to bring up in the context of all of these states that have reformed their civil asset forfeiture laws is firstly exactly what you're saying, that they're not red states, they're not blue states, they're not purple states, it's all states that are deciding that this is not a good way to run police departments. It undermines police legitimacy, as I talk about in the piece with my co-author and our director of criminal justice, who's a retired NYPD officer. When people don't see the police as legitimate, when they don't see the actions of police as legitimate, we have a law enforcement um, crisis in our country where people are unsure of the rule of law. They don't see police as legitimate. And when that happens, people are less inclined to follow the law. They're less inclined to trust 
um, the police officers to keep their communities safe. Um, and that comes to the detriment of communities attempting to be law abiding as well as to officers themselves. So that's the second point to bring up there. And the third point is there's different ways to reform civil asset forfeiture, right? Not all 37 states in DC have done this the same. Like you mentioned, four states have actually entirely abolished civil asset forfeiture. Um, and there are about a dozen states, I believe, who have closed what's called the equitable sharing loophole in their state. And that's where I turn in the piece to talk about federal legislation called the FAIR Act, which stands for the Fifth Amendment Integrity Restoration Act, um, which closes a loophole whereby even if a state has drastically limited what their officers can seize by their state laws, state officers are still able to run forfeitures through the federal government and still retain about 80% or up to 80% of the proceeds. So even for states that have put drastic limitations on civil asset forfeiture and raised the evidentiary standard to what we would um, deem acceptable, which would either be a criminal conviction or clear and convincing evidence in order to make a seizure, um, if even if they have that standard, they're still able to run it through the federal system, which has a standard of the preponderance of the evidence, which is about a coin flip. So even in states and many of these that have increased the standard, that's still an important loophole to close. And that's what the FAIR Act would do, which is why I bring up that um, um, that bill as well. Yeah. And you talk about the politics of this. The sponsors of that bill are reps Wahlberg and Raskin. Wahlberg mm -hmm. is a Trump endorsed congressman. Raskin is the chief prosecutor on a lot of these committees going after Trump right. on a lot of things. Those two guys are very, very different, but their work, I know bipartisanship's a bad word. Here's your perfect example, something where you've got some bipartisan consensus in a Congress that's very divided. Yeah, when I look at something that's super bipartisan, you either look at it that this has to be really, really good or it has to be really, really bad. Um, fortunately, like cutting through on this issue, it's a really, really good issue that um, Republicans and Democrats alike, especially those with the liberty streak in them, are realizing that, again, we do need to support law enforcement. We do need to support the ability to fight crime, especially while we're encountering increases in violent crime in communities. Law enforcement needs to spend their time doing that not trying to seize property of innocent people, making it difficult for them to get their property back and oftentimes ruining their lives. You know, it's not just automobiles like in these court cases that can be seized. Like I talked about in the article, law enforcement can seize whole businesses. They can seize your bank account. They can seize your home. And when that happens, it ruins your life candidly. And, you know, most people, even for the most informed citizen, are going to have a hard time battling it, often even an impossible time. And for the average layperson, it's going to ruin their life. And that's unfortunately what it's doing. Okay, you mentioned the sixth court. You mentioned Alabama. Some of these court cases coming up. Give folks a couple of things to pay attention to in the headlines because we got a lot of it in the news right now, both overseas and domestically. We've got the mess yeah. in Congress. Congressional action is just not going to happen right now in election year. Right. We'll just be honest about that. Local level, state level, federal. What can people pick out of the headlines to say, oh, this is a reform or civil asset story and I need to pay attention to it going forward in the coming months? Yeah, I think, again, like you mentioned, how I talk about the Michigan case, again, that is a state that has a high evidentiary standard for seizure, but yet the civil asset forfeiture program in Wayne County still is in violation of the Constitution, as the courts found, not due to the standard for seizure, but due to the lack of a speedy trial. So again, even if your state has reformed civil asset forfeiture, go out there and look for certain instances where it's still happening and you know, understand how the laws might be able to be changed towards um, a more fair system. And then additionally, of course, as I mentioned in the piece, the um, case that the Supreme Court is going to hear should be scheduled for October 30th this fall, which is just a mere 19 days away. Um, so pay attention for that. 
Um, and hopefully the, the outcome of that is positive for American rights. Yeah, Sarah Anderson joining us as a way to kind of put a bow on this. Here's the truth about um, law enforcement. Law enforcement is the branch of government most Americans will deal with at some mm -hmm. point. It's also the armed enforcement wing of the government. It needs to have accountability. As you talked about, this right. undermines accountability. How do we have that conversation? Because it's easy when you have a viral video of police misconduct, but that's the end product of a lot of other things. And part right. of the stuff that leads to how people react to that is how police conduct business like this. How do we have that conversation better and prevent some of that more ugly stuff by having more accountable police on financial matters like this that are kind of boring to folks, but just right. as important? Yeah, and that's exactly, I believe, how I close the pieces in terms of, you know, no matter where you are on the police debate, on the use of force debate, on the police legitimacy um, topic, the really important thing is that American civil rights and American constitutional rights cannot be subverted um, to either fund or defund the police. And so that conversation needs to be held on legitimate grounds, on legislative grounds, around the correct amount of funding for police, around the programs police should be um, implementing that should be fully funded. Um, at the R Street Institute, we work a lot on um, police accountability, police transparency, data collection, use of force standards, um, and also police deflect police led deflection models that can divert people from the criminal justice system entirely. Um, and while we're looking at those programs and promoting those, it doesn't make any sense to have law enforcement out there spending their time and spending their efforts seizing property just to fund their departments when a it's subverting American uh, constitutional rights and then B, it's, of course, not the most legitimate way to go about funding a police department. So we can have that debate, but it needs to be on legislative and legal grounds. Um, and we need to protect the rights of Americans first and foremost. Yeah, if it's right on paper, it's got to be a right in the street or it's not a right at all. Somebody way smarter than me once said, Sarah Anderson with the R Street Institute. We're going to keep having to hit this topic. We're going to link to the entire piece in the Hill to be on the Hertel Substack and in the notes, unless you're on iTunes, which won't let us link notes. Um, read all the whole piece. There's a lot of links in there, too. You want to read up on these cases for Sarah. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you and your work until we get you back on the program again, my friend. Absolutely. Well, you can find all of R Street's work at rstreet.org. Um, you can find me on Twitter at S-M-A-Y-R Anderson. Um, and again, rstreet.org is where you'll find all of our work, not only on civil asset forfeiture, but also um, in our other eight program areas, as well as all of our work on criminal justice from policing and pretrial all the way through to reentry and rehabilitation. Yeah, you got the same problem I did. I didn't think about having to do media hits when I picked my Twitter handle. And I'm like, oh, I got to spell yeah. it out for people. So that'll happen. Yeah. Our, street, <laughs> our street does great work. We've had many other folks on. We'll continue to do it. Sarah Anderson, outstanding stuff. Love talking to you. We will have you back. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Yes, ma'am. Hertel. We're out in Iowa with our good friend, John D.C. Here's the thing. For the next three months, everybody in America that does the talking head stuff like I do is going to pretend like they know about Iowa. We don't. We don't have a clue. So we're going to do what we did last time we need to do. It. We're going to talk to John because he actually does know it. How are you, my friend? Great to have you back. 
Oh, things are good in Iowa City. Yeah, I I always enjoy every now and then I'll do a radio hit out in Iowa, and I always tell them it's great to be with you in Iowa, even if only on the radio. That's usually because it's the wintertime or the summertime. It's either too hot or too cold because y'all don't really have that in between, do you? Uh, we're kind of on our one just right day of the year right now. Good stuff, as long as you get the corn in, right? Um, yeah, corn's coming in, beans are coming in, things are things are good out in the field. All right, well, you guys got your greatest import every four years. You got a slew of presidential candidates running around. I want to start here, though, because everybody's talking about the Republicans, and rightfully so. But before we dig into them, you know, last time we talked, you had just pretty much thrown your hands up at the Democratic caucus a little bit. You were frustrated with it. What's different this year? And we'll talk about the Democrats in just a second because they really are doing something different here, especially now that there's not really a primary to go through. And we'll tee up on mm-hmm. that. What's different 2024 than 2022 or 2020 or since we're going to do Trump and Biden again, 2016 for that matter? Mm-hmm. What is different? Well, uh, looking at the Republican side in 2016, uh, it was a pretty competitive race and uh, Trump was just one out of many. He didn't win Iowa. Of course, Ted Cruz won Iowa. He only got about maybe a quarter of the caucus vote. Uh, now he's been sitting pretty comfortably and pretty immobily at the 50, 60 percent range. And uh, I don't see anything dislodging him uh, from a strong first place finish. And the also rands are so splintered that it's going to be really difficult to even identify who the anti-Trump is coming out of Iowa. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you that right off the bat, because here's the narrative that's going around, especially since the last two debates, because we've had two debates. This field is set. We know who's doing what now. The numbers are not moving. I mean, they're moving three or four points. But statistically, you've done this a long time. If you're just bouncing around the mean, the number isn't really actually moving. This race has been static since probably June or July, really. It's nothing happening. The pitch from the DeSantis people and from everybody else, too, but he's the number two, so that's who they're paying attention to is, well, none of this matters. We're going to have a ground game in Iowa. You've seen a lot of ground games in Iowa. Does the ground game in Iowa line still matter the way it once does? And more importantly, to the point, what you just said, does it matter against Donald Trump? Because this isn't an open field. This isn't a regular incumbency. We've never seen a poll like what we're seeing in Iowa right now, where you got somebody over 50 percent in a crowded field right now that was a former president. We're kind of off the map a little bit. Does the ground game still matter, do you think? The ground game has mattered less and less and less uh, since uh, about the last 10 years or so. Uh, On the Democratic side in 2020, uh, 2020, uh, it wasn't even the Iowa ground game that broke people out of the pack. It was national internet based fundraising. And, uh, that's how Buttigieg caught fire. Uh, Klobuchar had some ground game, uh, but that's Democrats. Uh, I think the ground game matters less and less and less as the nomination contests have become more and more nationalized. Yeah, it feels that way. John Deese joining us out in Iowa. That brings up the question, though, that we always ask you, and you always kind of, you know, I'm sorry, it's just your lot in life that you have chosen. (laughs) I know. The Iowa caucuses, this feeds into the identity crisis of what it is, why it is, and who it is, right? Because if the ground game stuff don't matter, remember that you just talked about 2020, the fourth place guy was some guy named Joe Biden, wonder whatever happened to him. Yeah, Trump didn't win in 2016. He was second to Ted Cruz. 
that Ted Cruz operation is who's basically running the DeSantis Super PAC that's bragging about all the money they're dumping into Iowa right now, and you're seeing those mm -hmm. folks. This just feeds into the questions of what is Iowa's caucus now, does it not? I've heard uh, Republican friends tell me off the record, uh, this is probably going to be the last time that the Iowa Republicans are first in the nation as well. It's just not uh, one of the arguments against Iowa going first among the Democrats is it's not nationally representative. It's not really nationally representative on the Republican side either. It's representative of one faction within the Republican coalition, but it's not really uh, the voting system is so different in a caucus than in a primary. Uh, and the state party infrastructure is pretty much solid for Trump uh, with the exception of the governor who's, uh, you know, putting her finger to the wind and trying to see well, how she can benefit the best from it all. Uh, so uh, it's uh, the, the days of the Iowa caucuses are over on one side and nearly over on the other side. How unfair is it to say that this thing about the Iowa caucuses really doesn't have anything to do with the voters and the candidates? It's the machinery of the consultants that has built up Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, those first four states. You know, those are the big early ones. Mm -hmm. So much of the political machine, the business of running for president, national elections, are built up on having to put a lot of money into these early states like in Iowa, like in New Hampshire. That's really who's fighting this more than just the rank and file. And that's the piece that's kind of missing on everybody. goes like, well, why are we chasing our tails on that? Well, because it's really, really big business ahead of just the attention, right? A lot of money involved in it, yeah. And the thing about a caucus state is you're only appealing to the very narrow group of party activists who can take an evening and attend a meeting, uh, either a relatively short meeting for the Republicans or a very long meeting for uh, what the Democrats used to do. Uh, and that's not going to be representative of average voters, swing voters, anything like that. Uh, you're getting to the, the base of the base. Even the most highly attended caucus is still running below uh, a uh, U.S. Senate primary, for example. Yeah, John Deese joining us. You just mentioned her. I found the governor of Iowa, how she handled, you know, the soapbox days, the Iowa State Farm days. She did the open forums where she invited the candidates mm -hmm. I've, as an outside observer that just watches the politics, I found it so interesting how she handled these candidates because she's not a non-Trump person, but she just can't quite bring herself to be a Trump person this particular time. Now, some of that is because she's hosting, so I'll give her the benefit of the doubt on that. It just felt weird. The whole thing felt weird. How mm -hmm. is Trump actually doing when he shows up? Because we see the viral clips. We see him going to the Iowa game, that kind of stuff. How's he actually doing when he shows up? Because that here we go with this ground game thing. He's like, well, he just shows up and leaves. He's not putting time in. And I does he need to? The governor thing felt weird. The Trump stuff feels weird. What's it actually like there, though? He doesn't need to put the time in. He's an 800 pound gorilla in this field, uh, in a field of uh, uh, small, uh, you know, spider monkeys. <laughs> and uh, and uh, his people. The, the rally attendance is down a little bit, but uh, there are there's a strong core of voters who is simply going to show up whenever they ch get a chance to vote for Trump and for Trumpism. And uh, 
they'll show up at the caucus meeting. They'll they'll vote and they'll go home, and then the party regulars will choose the committee members. Uh, and assuming he's a nominee, which I'm assuming, uh, they'll show up on election day and vote for him, and maybe vote Republican the rest of the way down the ballot. Maybe not. Uh, one of the smarter things I've heard anybody say uh, in recent months was uh, Dana Houle from uh, Daily Coast uh, took a look at the whole, at the big picture of American politics and said that the issue is there's a third of Americans who believe that a different third of Americans are not legitimately Americans and should not have the full rights of citizenship. And that's really Trumpism in a nutshell. And there's a lot of people in dying small town Iowa who maybe wouldn't articulate it that clearly, but that's where their minds are. John Deese, I've been talking about this, but you know it way better than me. So just talk about the numbers for a minute. People are like, well, it's just polling. Polling don't matter. Okay. <laughs> Ted Cruz in 2016 won Iowa in a multi-headed race by 27% and change. Mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg won 2020 with 26% and change, statistically about the same thing. Yeah. Donald Trump's polling over 50%. He can lose half of his polling right now and probably still win the Iowa caucus. I'm not saying it can't happen. It would just be mm-hmm. something we've never, ever seen before. Yeah. Talk about, because you already mentioned it, these are small numbers. These are small groups. He doesn't need 40%, 50%. He needs 25 to 30%. That's always kind of been the magic number in a crowded field in Iowa. Yeah. The dynamic is such that this is a race for second. It reminds me more than any other race uh, of the 84 Democratic race, uh, where Mondale was miles ahead of the field. He wasn't obviously former president, but he was a former vice president. Uh, He had a lot of the party regulars with him. And then there was a battle below the radar for second. Uh, Gary Hart wound up winning that battle uh, against uh, John Glenn and George McGovern. And eight days after the Iowa caucuses, Gary Hart won New Hampshire uh, because the race in Iowa that year was to be the not Mondale. And the race in Iowa this cycle is to be the not Trump. Uh, and the question is going to be whether those never Trump or anti-Trump voters are going to consolidate behind DeSantis or possibly behind Haley or whether they're just going to splinter because it's in nobody's interest to drop out. Everybody understands that we need to consolidate behind one not Trump, but everybody thinks it's going to be them. Yeah, and the calendar, and you're big on the calendar. In fact, it's the pinned mm-hmm. tweet on your Twitter page right now. Yeah. The calendar matters here because Scott and Haley aren't going to drop out till South Carolina. That's the right. first one. So now you're already into, you know, March for practical purposes. Yeah, you're about Christie's to Super go- Tuesday. Yeah, Christie's going to stay in through New Hampshire at least. These other folks aren't going to drop out. DeSantis isn't going to drop out no matter what because he's got enough money to stick around. So you're going to have at least Vivek rhymes with snake, rhymes with fake. 
He's not going to drop out anytime soon. You're going to have at least six or seven people in those first four primaries. And if Trump wins three out of those four, this puppy's over. Yeah. And then it becomes really interesting if you get into a situation where these trials come to a head. Uh, Trump's never going to jail. Uh, he, my theory has always been that if it looks like he's going to get a sentence, he's going to uh, decamp and leave the country. He owns a uh, Trump resort in Dubai where there's no extradition treaty. Uh, so that's my theory. But let's say you get a scenario where Trump has uh, Trump. Let's say you get a scenario where Trump has clinched the delegates to clinch the nomination, but is somehow removed from competition for the nomination, those delegates are going to be the Trumpiest of the Trumpy. And who are they going to go with? That's the only scenario in which I see Trump not being the nominee is if he is elected as the nominee and then for whatever reason winds up leaving the race by choice or not. And that's really, I hate to put it this way, but that's the only hope these candidates have. And they're act. here's the thing. They can say with their words all they want to, I don't see them really attacking Trump. They're doing it a little bit more now, but not the way you normally would. They're just hoping he goes away still. That's what yeah. their actions tell me when I watch them. And mm-hmm. I've you know, been watching this stuff for a little while. Their actions tell me they're still just hoping yeah. the Trump thing will go away. It's not right. just going to go away. Yeah, they can't attack Trump because that backfires on them. Uh, the only it it also doesn't work to try to be Trumpier than Trump because, you know, you can't compete on that level. The only uh, angle that seems to work is questioning whether he can beat Biden. Uh, And you can't even call him a loser because most of the Republican base doesn't believe he lost in 2020. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
John Deese, our man out in Iowa. Well, let's talk about President Biden for a second, because something really is interesting for, you know, us election geek folks a little bit. They're going to have to do some kind of a dry run for the new Iowa Democratic, how they do things here. Now, RFK Jr. has, you know, decided to go independent route. He wasn't going to win anyway. There's not going to be a primary except on. Yeah, good riddance. There's not going to be anything but a primary on paper. But now you have a dry run after all this mess. We talked about it last year with you, all this mess in the Democratic side of the House on how they're going to conduct themselves going forward. You've been talking about this a little bit. What should they do? Do you spend the money for a full-blown run-through? Do you try to get the kinks out wide for all practical purposes? Nobody's watching, so if it's a you know mess up, it, nobody's going to really care. What would you do if you were running the election stuff with this opportunity to like, hey, here's here's a dry run. What do we do with it? Well, the only real reason at this point with Kennedy out of the Democratic race uh, to conduct uh, a mail-in party-run primary for the Iowa Democrats is simply to prove that we know how to count votes because there's some legitimate question that the Iowa Democratic Party knows how to count votes. There were questions in 2016. There were questions in 2020. Uh, the state party has been extremely tight-lipped about what they're going to do. Uh, the when this started back last summer, the idea was that we were going to conduct this mail-in vote before the January 15th caucus and announce those results on caucus night. Nobody seriously seems to be thinking that that's happening now, but we haven't said that it's not happening, which is why New Hampshire is uh, hedging on its date, because they consider a mail-in party-run primary to be you know, stepping on their toes. Uh most one of the things I've assumed has been happening is that uh, there's higher ups in the De- Iowa Democratic Party, in particular DNC member Scott Brennan, who are lobbying the DNC to try to get back into the early states. Uh, as you may remember, uh, the order that uh, President Biden set forth was South Carolina, followed by Nevada and New Hampshire together, followed by Georgia and then Michigan uh, fifth. Georgia pulled out of the early states because the Georgia Republicans wouldn't cooperate. So what I think is happening right now is that the Iowa Democratic Party's higher-ups are lobbying the DNC to try to get that Georgia slot, which would be February 13th or 20th. That's not going to happen. The whole reason for the calendar reform was to get rid of Iowa. But there's some people in the Iowa Democratic Party's donor class who are clinging to that and hoping that uh, Iowa can keep at least in the early states. But in order to do that, they've got to conduct a vote and prove that they can count the votes. Yeah, John Deese. This is one of the reasons I want to talk to you about it because you understand that it's not just the case. you got to have a good process. And the yeah. problem optically for people that don't follow this stuff is when they watch the Iowa caucuses the last couple times, it looked like chaos on TV, even though it really wasn't all that bad, although the Democratic thing got pretty ugly with, you know, <laughs> where you couldn't figure out a winner until you'd actually already gone to the next primary. Mm-hmm. It just looks bad optically. And that's really the biggest problem, isn't it? It's like you have to have a process where even if people don't understand it, it just looks right on TV because that's just the age we live in now where everybody's got a cell phone and all those caucus stuff, which was quaint and funny and it was crazy and chaos. Now on viral video, it looks bad without the context. That's a problem. Right. 
That 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 is a problem, and the Iowa Democratic Party recognized it was a problem. They surveyed their own members; their own members said it was a problem. So a lot of that stuff is gone. There's going to be no more realignment, no more stand in the corner for two, three hours, uh, no more twisting arms and trying to persuade. The January 15 caucus meeting is simply going to be uh, the party activists show up. It's going to be really low attendance. Uh, they elect an unpledged set of delegates to the next level of convention. They elect their committee members and they talk about the platform. No presidential voting at all. And the vision for the presidential vote is uh, you send in your uh, ballot to the Iowa Democratic Party. They count them up. They announce the results, which is something that uh, people outside of Iowa and outside of the insular little world of Iowa Democratic Caucus politics will understand there's going to be a number and there's going to be a winner and presumably that winner is going to be the president. Uh, I don't think there's a real hotbed of Marianne Williamson support out here. Uh, I was told that there was a Kennedy supporter in my town. Uh, I don't know what's happened with him, but there was one. A, he was singular, yes. (laughs) Uh, God help that poor person. John D's out in Iowa. Let's talk about Biden for just a second, though, because all these presidential candidates are going to tell me over and over again that Iowa is the real American. So I'm going to take him at his word for it. How is the president playing? Because, you know, we we get caught up on social media. He has bad viral moments. He has some good viral moments. Mm-hmm. What do they actually think about Joe Biden? Because I think there's two things you have to talk about with Joe Biden. One is his obvious liabilities as a candidate. He's too old. He fobbles. He does all the baked in Sheriff Joe, Uncle Joe, Crazy Joe stuff that we've known for 50 years. But then you have to put in the other fact is like all those problems get mitigated if you put him against Donald Trump. So I think you have those twin parallels. What is it playing like in somewhere like Iowa, though? What are people actually thinking about President Biden now? I think, uh, and I'm in an insular little world in an academic town, uh, the Democratic activists seem uh, comfortable or at least accepting of Biden 2.0, or I guess it would be Biden 4.0, because he had those two other runs. Uh, People seem accepting of the fact that he is going to be the nominee. There's not a uh, Bernie faction looking for Bernie 3.0. There's not, you know... The, the Buttigieg people are all on board. Uh, you get outside of the insular little world of democratic politics, and it simply becomes a partisan thing. You get out into those rural towns uh, where they think every Democrat is a pedophile. It doesn't matter whether it's Biden or whether it's Harris or whether it's whoever. Uh, it's just the D after your name is fatal. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a lot of our rural activists who don't even want to put their signs up because they don't like bullet holes in their signs. So uh, it's just this fear and frustration among the Democrats in the non in the non blue areas, which is most of the state anymore. I think what happened in 2020 was that voters in general thought there was this unspoken bargain. OK, we'll vote for Biden. Uh, he's acceptable to the normies. Uh, he's so old that he's only going to serve one term. Uh, the normies will vote for him to get rid of Trump. Trump will lose and Trump will go away. Uh, the problem with that theory is Biden's never said he was only going to run for one term and Trump never said he was going to go away. Uh, 
nobody really wants this rematch, but nobody ever signed on for that unspoken deal that people thought they had in 2020. Yeah, John Deeks joining us. I think you're absolutely right about that, except there's people like us who actually pay attention to stuff going, no, 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 Joe Biden didn't wait 55 years to be president just to do one term. You're going to have to drag him out of there. And of course, here Mm -hmm. he is. And there's no way Trump was going to go away quietly. He's going to keep doing this until the wheels fall off or he gets extradited or whatever happens. I think yeah. you're 100% right on that. But that leads me to my back to the Iowa GOP primary we're looking at. I, I've, I try to pay attention to this as best I can. And we opened up with this. Observing this race, the poll numbers are not moving. The ground game stuff isn't working. I just don't see a slick bit of evidence that less than 30% of the GOP primary does not want Donald Trump. And that's the whole story of this GOP primary to me. Am I wrong? Yeah. The fact that no one was able to get any traction and the fact that no one uh, has established themselves as the not Trump. It's not even a thing where you get a non-Trump of the month and you get another non-Trump of the month. It's just been he's been steady at around 50, 60 percent ever since launch date. And I don't see how that is going to budge. Uh, He is what the Republican base wants. Okay, let's have a little fun because this is kind of heavy. Put your hat on for your wizardry. 2024 is upon us. You know, it's like the asteroid. Everybody talks Iowa, and then a week later, everybody forgets it for three you know, years, and we come back mm-hmm. to it. 2028, though, because this is how it's been with Iowa. Usually, the second we're done with this, the 2028 folks start showing up in Iowa. This might be different because the caucus system may change. But on the Democrat side, though, Some of those folks have already been poking their nose around just in case it doesn't change. What do you see for 2028? Because Biden, I, this is me projecting. This is just my opinion. So take it for a grain of salt. I think he's the last coalition candidate we're going to see for the Democrats. I think the Democratic party is going to go through some things when Biden passes off the scene because they're going to have to readjust. Now they're not going to have a coalition candidate like him again. You got a lot of names floating out there. Harris going to run. Newsom's going to run. The governor of Illinois has got a billion dollars. He's probably going to run. There'll be others. What do you think 2028 looks like since it's probably going to be a little bit different? Because some of those folks have already been talking to some of your folks and you've already seen them poking their heads around. I think 2028 is going to be nationalized and that Iowa is going to be a very, very small piece of that on the Democratic side. Uh, I think uh, putting South Carolina first was very, very much done by uh, by the president uh, on behalf of his vice president. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to knock off uh, an incumbent vice president who's got the sitting president's tacit support. Uh, that's assuming that uh, she's not already president by that point. Uh, and in that case, I'd say it's game over. Uh, there's not the... Uh, 
there's not the oomph there to primary challenge a uh, incumbent president. There's still people who have nightmares about Ted Kennedy and uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, I th- Buttigieg will be back at some point, whether that's in 28 or further down the road. Uh, Newsom, uh, a lot depends upon how he manages to thread this needle after the Senate appointment. Uh, that was uh, a real a real difficult thing for him. And Barbara Lee's people are still pretty unhappy about the fact that she wasn't appointed. She felt like she deserved that. Pritzker, uh Maybe uh, the party activists seem to think fairly uh, well of him. Uh, you know who's been to Iowa quite a bit is Tim Walls, the governor of Minnesota. Now, I don't know whether he's simply doing the Iowa Democratic Party a favor by coming in to do counter-programming events to the Republican candidates, whether he's a stalking horse for Klobuchar, uh, but he's been here at least three times. And nobody else has been around. We've got our, uh, our county party is having its fall fundraiser this weekend. And historically, that's been a place where we get uh, presidential level surrogate speakers or uh, administration officials. Uh, our speaker this year is the Dirt Road Democrat who uh, ran for a Missouri legislative seat. Uh, so that's a sign of where we're at a year before a presidential race is we've got a party activist as our guest speaker when we used to get all the presidential candidates. Yeah. It's interesting how times change, but that talking about vice president Harris. So that brings us right back to Iowa and how it has changed though, because I said it, I was like, you know, she didn't even make it to Iowa in her own presidential campaign. Normally that would be a, you know, sort of a death nail kind of thing. But now you're saying it may not matter that much. That's how much things have changed even just in four years. Yeah. What's going to matter is going to be the national polls, the national fundraising, uh, who goes. Somebody could go viral the way that Buttigieg basically did. Uh, the Bernie faction is going to have somebody running, whether that's AOC or Rokana or whoever. Uh, but there's going to be somebody, uh, and that faction in Iowa, at least, is maybe 20% of the of the uh, primary slash caucus electorate. Uh, so if the field is splintered, that 20%-ish might be enough for a win, uh, but it's not enough for a nomination because we saw what happened in 2020. Uh, as soon as candidates started failing and Sanders started finishing first in states, everybody very rapidly consolidated behind Joe Biden. Yeah. John Deeth. All right, let me throw you one more hypothetical and then I'll leave you alone. Uh, Let's say, let's just take the money line. If we were betting on things, Uh, Democrats retake the house, they probably lose the Senate or it's closed just because the math is so bad for them this year. Even, even if the Republicans completely wet the bed, they're probably going to get the Senate back. So you flip Congress the exact opposite and Biden squeaks it out again and wins five, four or five points, something decently fair. Is that just a reset and we do this all over again for three more years? That, that, it's going to kind of be unprecedented, but it sure feels like that's where we're going of just lather, rinse, repeat, don't it? It kind of does. Uh I think the what's ultimately going to set the direction of the next uh, couple of years is going to be how these Trump trials shake out. If he gets an actual criminal conviction and has to go into exile, uh, that's going to be a real problem. I mean, he'll he'll 
keep loudmouthing wherever in the world he is. Uh, but it's real difficult to, uh, you know, try to take over a country from exile. Uh, you can't have your uh, rallies and your, your feel good from your rallies. Uh, it's not the same if you're doing it by video from Dubai. Uh, so then the question becomes what happens to Trumpism without Trump? What happens to that third of America who thinks another third of America shouldn't have the rights of citizenship? Uh, and that really determines what happens. And then it also becomes a question of after eight years of Democratic control, getting a 12th year of control is really tough for any party trying to keep the White House. It hasn't happened yeah. since uh, Reagan Bush. Yeah, and that didn't work out real well for HW either because it, and look, it was fatigue. It People forget we were talking about this with another guest the other time. Look, you know, '98 midterms was my first election, so I remember that time period. What Clinton just hit perfectly the the end of the height of you know cable television news media, the height of their power. Young mm -hmm. guy, there was fatigue from you know years and years. Even though HW was you know very qualified, he just he looked old, sounded old, talked old because he was old. It was just kind of that confluence. I can kind of see here after this next cycle, I think we're going to have one of those generational shift things, good or bad. I think you're definitely going to have a change in a hurry. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because we had a general. It's interesting because we had an generational change with Obama and then we changed back to the boomer generation and now Biden technically even before the boomer generation. Uh, if Harris is elected president, she'd be the first president younger than me. Uh, and she's not even that young. So uh, something is something is going to happen. Uh, I mean, I live in a college community with a lot of young voters and it's going to be really challenging next year to get people fired up for Grandpa Joe. Yeah, it would be. And, and Kamala Harris, you know, she would be 62, 63 by 2028. So, uh -huh. we, but, you know, compared to Joe and Trump, that would feel young. But, you know, we don't know the next young batch coming. John Deeth, always appreciate the time. Enjoy you getting us on for all of this. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. I'm still on whatever used to be called Twitter as my name, John Deeth. Yep. And you got your turtle. I'll wear my turtle shirt next time for you, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks for the time today, my friend. All right. Fear the turtle. Yes, sir. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, let's go to Clarksburg, West Virginia. WBOY TV station I watched a lot growing up. Uh, got a tour of that. We actually went on a uh, field trip in grade school there, which was cool, but they weren't actually doing any TV because they were running Masters of the Universe at the time. That's He-Man for those of you that grew up in Logan. 
Uh, WBOY TV, the acclaimed singer Lana Del Rey said during her Thursday concert at the Charleston, West Virginia Coliseum that she would donate her ticket sales to the city she visited during a recent tour, according to a TikTok post on Friday. In the TikTok posted by Lana Del Rey, said to you and to every city I've gone to before this, and also I want to let you know for what it's worth, every ticket, every dollar, it's all poured right back in your city because it's not about that for me. Her visit to Charleston concluded her most recent tour, which began September 14th in Tennessee. Her tour included... Franklin, Tennessee, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Huntsville, Alabama, West Palm Beach, Florida, Tampa, Brandon, Mississippi, Charlotte, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and of course, Charleston. All those cities will be getting the full proceeds from the mini tour. Really cool thing. And this made the show because my daughter pointed it out to me. So well done, youngest youngin. Thanks for pointing that one out to me. Always like seeing artists, especially ones my kids like to make them happy that they're doing good in the community. I'll try to remember that as I'm sitting with her through the Taylor Swift movie in a few days. Uh, that'll do it for her to tell. Make sure you're following us on whatever platform you're listening. Make sure you're leaving a rating. Make sure you're leaving a comment if they give you that option. Let's other people know they can check out our program. Let's those platforms know that we're doing good work with our little program. We don't do any advertising outside of our own social media. So although this show only costs you a click, if you give us two or three and give us a share and a recommendation. That would be great. iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all the platforms, the good talks are on YouTube. We are very excited to be back on the Carolina Coastal Carolina Network. Uh, our old friend TK Turbo, the radio network down in the Coastal Carolina area, Wilmington, uh, Southport, uh, Jacksonville, all the way down to Myrtle Beach. Appreciate those folks. Glad to be back on the radio down there with them. And wherever you and yours are across the street and around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.